Good evening, Rockbridge. I am so glad that everybody is here with us this weekend at all six of our physical locations, Rockbridge PM, and also those of you who are watching online. My name is Matt. We're glad that you're here. I want to remind you we have the link kickoff this coming uh, Sunday night at all six of our locations, and then also we have Wednesdays at 6.33 that are continuing this week, and we'll be praying for our communities, our nation, praying for some of our mission and hope partners, so we encourage you to continue to be with us in that. We have had salvations at Wednesday night. We have had just people seeking God in such a fresh, incredibly powerful way, so I hope that you'll continue to make plans to make that consistent Wednesday night prayer and fasting together as we move forward uh, for what God has for us. So we uh, kicked off a new series last week called Ripple Effect. We are navigating through the entire book of 1 Corinthians, and we are submitting ourselves to God's Word, renewing our commitment to being people uh, that come under the authority and believe in the sufficiency of God's Word to us. So if you have your Bibles, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're just navigating through that as well. So the question I just want to kick us off with is this. How would you define a good life, a well-lived life, a successful life? Because whatever definition you have, which might have something to do with your career path, it might have something to do with maybe what people think about you, it might have something to do with where you want to be at a certain age or how you want to retire or all of those kind of things. However you define this or however you think about this is a couple of things. Number one is it's direction setting for your life, that you're going to move in the direction of these definitions, you're gonna, this is like a vision of where you want to be and where you want to go, and we all have it. Now, for most of us, it, right, wrong, and different, for better or for worse, the world, which, and, and by that I don't just mean uh, the sphere that we live on, uh, by that I also mean the, the world system, the world values. So whether it's like capitalism and money, whether it's sex and power, whether it's, you know, people liking us or doing what you think will make you happy, the world system influences, factors in how you and I define the good life, how you and I define the well-lived life. So as we journey back in time with this church that Paul planted at Corinth, they too had definitions. They too had definitions that were very much influenced by first century Roman Empire the city, the cosmopolitan city of Corinth. And so Paul is speaking to this group of believers who live in the world and have, for better or for worse, taken on some of the world's definitions of what it means to have a good life, a successful life, and we'll learn from that. We pick it up kind of where we left off. We talked about this last week. This is where we ended, verse 17. The cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. So the cross where Jesus died, more than a historical occurrence, something happened, something occurred, and it has or it works out an effect. And then this is the new, one, new part of where we're going this week. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. And, and Paul does something quite remarkable, and we'll, this will spill over actually in the next week. He divides the human race into two groups of people and only two groups of people. You know, I, and before I kind of exp unpack that, think of how divided we are, whether it's by race, by socioeconomics, 
by political stance, red state, blue state, liberal, conservative, woke, not woke, all those kind of things. I mean, we have a way to sort of subdivide and subdivide and factionalize and get in our groups of people who look like us, act like us, think like us, vote like us, spend money like us, etc. And Paul says, no, no, no. There's really just two groups of people. You have people who have responded to the message of the cross, and so it is with effect in their lives. And then you have people who have not responded. And he says this group of people is being saved. He's being saved. And this group of people is perishing. And he said that is really the two groups of people. And as we're going to see, the definition of success, the definition of a good life, the definition of a well-lived life, the definition that comes out of the cross is this, is that living in su- we live in such a way that the effects and the power of the cross are central to us. Now, that, I, I doubt many of us have thought about the cross that way. Some of you may be new to church, new to Christianity even. Maybe you, you understand Easter, you understand, hey, Jesus died on the cross. But what Paul is saying is that who we are is defined by what we've done with the cross and that we live with its effects and we live with its power. Now, here's here's the challenge that I think we have. The cross is more than an event in history. Most people, even non-believers, atheists, will say, hey, the cross is something, the crucifixion is something that happened. The Romans killed, you know, about a half a million people during their time through crucifixion. Uh, we happen to know two guys' names, Spartacus, who led a slave rebellion, and Jesus of Nazareth, who claimed to be God. So it's more than an event in history, according to Paul. It's more than the means to eternal life. And some of us who have been in church all our lives, we need to understand that. Notice that Paul uses, let's go back to like sixth grade English class, he uses present tense. You are being saved by the cross. He doesn't use past tense. He could. He doesn't use future tense. He could. He uses present tense that you never get beyond the cross, that the cross is not something that gives you eternal life to enjoy once you get there, but the cross is actually the way of life while you're on earth. It's the way of everyday life. It is the successful life. It is the good life. It is life lived at the cross with its power and with its effects. And that's going to kind of be mind-boggling. Because again, I, most of us, maybe, maybe we were told, you know, Jesus died for you, and if you trust in him, you'll go to eternal life. And we never got to this part. We never got to this part. And, and so the cross hasn't affected how we view success. How we view success has been affected by the world in which we live in by the people that we look up to or compare ourselves to, by People Magazine or or, or social media. And and so Paul is attacking an absolute core tenet of what it means to be a human being and how it means to define ourselves. And, and, And then he goes further and he starts to unpack a little bit in the mind of God of why God orchestrated our salvation on a hill in a remote town, in a remote area of the world where this God-man Jesus hung on a tree. And he quotes something from Isaiah 29, 14, and he says, For it is written, this is God speaking, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside 
the intelligence of the intelligent. And he quotes Isaiah, so he's saying, look, I've always had in mind a means, a plan of salvation, of being saved. I've always had that the way of life of my people that, that, are, that call me by name will not be in accordance with the wisdom of the world and the intelligence of the intelligent. It's not going to look like anything of this world. It's not going to be something we could put 10 of the smartest guys in the room and they would ever imagine, envision, or figure out the cross. And, and so because the cross is central to the good life, the well-lived life, the successful life, we have to unlearn something. Because basically what Paul, what Paul is teaching is that any definition of success that's fueled by and directed by our personal pride is, is a wrong definition of success. If the cross is a way of life and the cross is designed by God to go against pride because pride is really the root of all problems and the root of all evil, th then any definition of success has to counteract our pride. Now, you think about it, though. How much does our definition of worldly success hinge upon self-promotion, taking care of number one, getting in a good place, being comfortable, being happy, being wealthy for our time on earth? How, how much energy is spent on managing ourselves? How much energy is spent on promoting ourselves? How much energy is spent on building a resume for ourselves? And Paul has just right then smacked that and said, no, God has an absolute all-out war against pride. Now, he does it for a couple of reasons, because pride actually contends with his supremacy and his sufficiency and leads ultimately to our self-destruction. James will say it this way, why do you have wars and fights among you, right? It's because you don't get what you want. That's driven by pride. You take any relational problem that exists on the planet, whether it's between two couples or between two nations, and I guarantee you, you pull back the curtain and pride's there. We all have it. We all have to fight it. And here's what we need to understand. Because pride is kind of the original sin, God is on an all-out war against pride. He hates pride. You know, you can make a list of things you hate. You might say, man, I hate racism, or, or I hate injustice, or, or I hate people that are in extreme poverty. Biblically, you can make an argument that God hates pride more than anything else because pride is what has brought destruction into the human race. What Pride is what contends with the supremacy of God. And so the very means of salvation, the very way of life that God gives to his people is a, a, an affront to our pride because we look at Jesus on the cross and we're like, man, I put him there. My sins put him there. It should have been me there. We look at Jesus, God himself, humbling himself, becoming like a man, dying this criminal's death. And Paul, and Paul is teaching that, hey, this, this success is not going to look anything like the world you live in. Success is not going to appeal to or fuel your pride. Success is not something that's going to look, show up on a magazine cover. Success is going to look different. And Paul is turning that definition upside down and unraveling it. And, and then he goes forward and he, and he starts to talk about a little cultural dynamic in Corinth, but we could relate to it. 
He says, who is the one who is wise? And there was a big value on philosophy back in the first century in this city. There was a big value on teachers of the law, people who knew the Old Testament. And then where's the debater of this age? People that would just put forth knowledge and put forth ideas. It sounds like watching the evening news in America, right? And just espouse opinions. And, and he says, hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? And what he's saying is this, none of these things, would ever lead a person to the cross. So you think about our world. People get upset about capitalism, Marxism, socialism, or we get passionate about liberalism or conservatism. You think about materialism. You think about hedonism. You think about pluralistic living. You think about all these things that get talked about in the evening news that people get mad about on social media. You think about all these things that just arouse emotion and, and everybody's got an opinion and everybody's got a belief. Paul would say, not one of those will lead to the cross. Not one of them. I mean, even like as Christian Americans or Christians in America, I mean, we value democracy, but sometimes we value democracy like it's salvation. In fact, you know, the framers, the reason they created our system was to limit too much power in any one sinner's hands. They were scared of like a monarchy because no, they didn't want any human being to have that much power. And, and, and even how, what a beautiful system they came up with, it still doesn't lead anybody to the cross. So all this stuff, all these ideas, all these opinions, all these things that everybody in every age gets, gets you know, kind of woken up by, aroused by, and opinionated by, Paul's like, that's not God's wisdom. It doesn't lead to the cross. And so he's saying, listen, any life path, any way, perspective that we see the world in which we live in and view ourselves in the world that does not lead us to or leads us away from the cross is absolutely foolish. It will lead us to the... Remember, there's two groups of people. Only two groups of people. And it will lead us to perishing and self-destruction. It will lead us away from God. And so he's actually asking. This is crazy, right? I mean, you talk about like stepping on your toes, preaching, right? He's actually telling the Corinthian church, you have got to quit trying to fit in and be successful in the world in which you live in. I, God has inverted the definition of success. It will require humility, and it will occur in the shape of a cross. He continues to unpack this, and he says this, verse 21. In, for since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom. So, so uh, no brilliant economist, no sports analyst, no person that can figure, no, the people who can like figure out how our DNA works and how, how to defeat cancer cells and people, nobody, no, nobody with this great high IQ, nobody is ever going to have invented or think of or bring us to the cross. The world did not know God through its wisdom. The way the world operates and how to be wise in the world will not lead us to the cross. It will lead us to being perish, perishing. It will lead us away from the cross. So God was pleased, though. It gave God pleasure to do something, to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached, the foolishness of the cross, the foolishness of taking a man, stripping him naked, beating him beyond recognition, placing him on a hill, on a tree, and saying, that's the guy through whom your hope, life, and salvation rests upon. 
It's absolute foolishness when you think about it. And, and he said, this is the problem. We have the Jews who are asking for a sign. They're saying, God, I'll believe in you if, if you'll just do this for me. We probably all prayed some kind of prayer like that. That's leaving us and our pride in the driver's seat because we're putting demands upon God. And the Greeks seek wisdom. And this is not godly wisdom. This is the wisdom of what does it take to be prosperous and successful in Corinth? What does it take to be prosperous and successful in the world I live in? God, give me that wisdom. And there's even a perversion of Christianity today called the prosperity gospel. That the God of the cross, and this is where it's just crazy, the God of the cross is supposed to keep us from all suffering and help us have a lot of money and never get sick. And there's a perversion of the gospel. It's called the prosperity gospel. So he says, look, the Jews seek wisdom, the Greeks seek, the Jews ask for signs, the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. We just preach Jesus on a bloody cross. And it's a stumbling block to the Jews. They can't fathom it, and it's foolishness to the Gentiles. That word stumbling block, is, we get the word scandal from it. It's scandalous. It's scandalous. I mean, even you, you come to church, most people come to church, they don't want to hear the preacher talk about, you know, saying no to their pride. We want to hear, hey, give me a funny story, give me some inspiration, and, and send me on my way, Pastor, so I can have a better Monday or better Friday or better week. But Paul says, no, we preach Christ crucified. So to kind of understand and get underneath the, 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 the depth of what he's doing and the power of what he's doing, let's look at this. Now, let's just put ourselves, let's go back first century and let's take a gentile a non-jew non-ethnic jew non-ethnic non a, a, a gentile non-jewish person and let's take them out to golgotha and show them this image and just imagine we're there real time except he would be naked couldn't recognize him and you take that gentile and you say hey that's the son of god he's eternal He's always existed. That's, that's God right there. He's dying for you. He's dying instead of you. That's the only way to be saved. You know what that Gentile would say? If we're really being honest, <laughs> I feel sorry for that guy. That's, that's, or he's crazy, and they'd walk away. Now let's go to America. Let's imagine we took two middle-class people, you know, they get up every day, they, they go out, make a living, have a vacation every year, got a nice retirement account, everything's hunky-dory. And we took them out to this remote garbage dump. And we said, hey, there's a, and there, there was a guy hanging on a tree, look, look somewhat like this. We said, hey, you see that guy right there? That's the only way to be saved, by believing he's God and that he's dying for you and instead of you. Now, you know what most, I mean, now someone might take, a sale, might, might take a picture of it and cry for it. And, you know, we might have a quick, you know, 10-minute viral, viral picture. Hey, justice, justice, what is it? You know, we might feel sorry for him. Some people might, do, might give it lip service because it's the cultural thing to do, maybe because maybe our, our heel garbage dumps in the Bible belt, but then they would go live the rest of their lives for the success in this world. Paul is simply saying what I've just described. This 
in the world's eyes is absolutely foolish. This as the means of life, salvation, eternal life. I mean, it's much, it would make much more sense if I just stood up here and said, hey, good people go to heaven when they die. Let's close in prayer, and I'll see you next week. And most of us would walk out of here and say, you know what, I'm a pretty good person. I feel pretty good about myself. But that's speaking to your pride, isn't it? This says there are no good people except one, and look what the world did to him. This says my sins and your sins and my rebellion and your rebellion put him there, but he stayed there because it gave God pleasure. It gave God pleasure to save those who will believe that this is the Son of God, that this is the one who died instead of us, that this was necessary for our salvation, and this is to be our way of life in this world and to change how we see ourselves, to change how we view success in the world. So it, it looks foolish. It sounds foolish. I was reading kind of this, what I was going to talk about, and I was like, you know, just if in my natural state, that just is ludicrous. So how do people get saved? How do people worship this? Why do some people make jewelry out of this? Why do we put this on t-shirts? Why do we sing about this? Because God does something. We talked about this last week. To those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles or Jews and Greeks, we say it at Rockbridge, all walks of life, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So we look at this and we're like, that, we're called. God works on us. We're like, that's what it took for me to cross from death to life. That's what it took for me to be adopted. That's the wisdom of God. That's the power that gives me a new identity that is not based on what people think about me, how much money I have. My new identity isn't even based on all the bad things I've done. My new identity is blood-bought by Jesus Christ. My eternity is altered because of that. And so I don't see that as foolishness. I see that as wisdom, as power, as love, as my life. That's the cross. Right? So let's, let's keep tracking with Paul. Because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. That's a hit on our pride. And God's weakness is stronger than human strength. That's a hit on our pride. And then he, he turns, and now he starts talking to the church members of Corinth. Remember, this church, if you were here last week, it's messed up. I mean, wait till we get to chapter 5, PG-13, baby, right? I mean, it's messed up. See what he says. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. He says, go back and remember when you were saved, when you understood God was calling you to the cross. He goes, not many of you were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. It's like the world kind of looked at you and you were insignificant. But instead, your salvation is actually proof 
that God is not calling necessary. God doesn't call you because you're talented. God doesn't call you because you've got this amazing skill set. God doesn't call you because you've got a certain IQ. God doesn't call you because you've racked up some good works. God calls you in a state of poverty where you recognize you're insufficient, where you recognize that, that you need someone to save you. You can't save yourself. Where you recognize that the way of the world actually and the way of pride actually leads to death and destruction. So God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something. I love that. Let's say that again. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world. Undoubtedly, there's some people here. And when you look at yourself, that's kind of how you feel. You know what? When God looks at you, what he feels? It gave him pleasure to save those who believe in the foolishness of the cross. To bring to nothing what is viewed as something so that no one may boast in his presence. So that no one may boast in his presence. So that no one may boast in his presence. You ever listen to how Christians talk? And we talk like the world. We're like, oh my gosh, you've just got to go hear this person sing. They are such a good singer. Oh, if that person with all their money and with all, you know, with all their talents, if they could just become a Christian, God would just really, you know what Paul would say? No, that's not the power. That's not the boast. Because our, our, our incredible status that has been won for us by the cross, eternal life, adopted sons, daughters, God will work all things for good. Those who love him are called according to his purpose. Our status begins and is sustained by understanding our incredible insufficiency. So God's like, here's what God says to the Corinthian church. Hey, remember when you came to Christ for the first time? You knew you needed Christ. You knew you needed that bloody guy nailed to a tree to save you, to redeem you, to adopt you. But what's happened is you've left that, you've left the cross, and you've resorted, resorted back to the prideful ways of the world. So understand this. Our calling to God and by God is not about what we bring with us, but rather what God puts into us. It requires our emptiness to receive God's fullness. And what's better than being full of myself? Being full of God. That's my destiny. That's what Jesus died to do. So, yes, sometimes we want God to scratch our pride and fuel our pride. He refuses to do it. Because he knows what's best is to get me out of the way. So he can put more of himself in more of me. More of himself in more of me. So he comes back and he says, it's from him that you are in Christ, Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us. And he describes the wisdom of God. Now look at the wisdom of God. The wisdom, how to live our lives. That's what wisdom is. How to live your lives correctly. How to live your lives successfully. He flips it. Because it's not, you know, you can do it, God can help. 
It's from him that you are in Christ, and in Christ you have this wisdom that's for you. Righteousness, right standing with God, reconciled to God. No, capitalism, Americanism, democracy, communism, nothing is going to provide that for us except the message of the cross. Sanctification, our holiness, our being set apart, and redemption, that we have been bought back from sin, bought back from the kingdom of darkness, bought back from the ways of the world. In order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. You know what the resume of a Christian is? Has nothing to do with what college you went to, what jobs you've had. You know what the resume of a Christian is? No, it's not your bank account, you know, how you have to do all that stuff when you apply for a job or apply for a loan, you put all this stuff about you, and you're like, uh, uh. You know what the resume of a Christian is? In Christ. That's my resume. You know what God looks at? Are you in Christ or not? Are you on the side of the cross or on the ways of the world? That's it. So the beautiful thing is this. What he's saying is, listen, success is not about the work we do or the things we attain. It's the relationship we maintain with God at the cross. And so here's my definition based on Paul's writing. Here's my kind of saying it to you in a way maybe we can grab on. Here's success. It's getting to the cross, never leaving yet quickly returning when we stray away. That's it. It's getting to the cross. The cross informs everything. That's the ripple effect. It touches, we drop the rock of the cross, the rock of ages, into the heart, into history. It affects everything. So get to the cross, never leave the cross, yet return to the cross. So what happened is the church at Corinth, they got to the cross. Paul planted the church, spent 18 months preaching to the church. They came to the cross, yet they left the cross and started going back to the success definition of the world. And what Paul is doing, first two, three chapters, is calling them to return, to return to the cross. Martin Luther, who's instrumental in what's called the Protestant Reformation, he has this quote, and I love it. He says, do you feel as if Jesus died only yesterday? You remember... I was overseas when 9-11 happened, and I was, we were the first you know, combat unit to come back home because we responded off the coast of Afghanistan and Pakistan, and, and we came back home. There were 10,000 people on the pier waving American flags because everybody was, we remembered 9-11. We were impacted by 9-11. Remember how patriotic the country was? And then what happened? Well, we waned, right? And we forgot, you know, and then we go back to our normal. What, what Martin Luther is saying is don't ever get over the day Jesus died. Don't ever leave the cross. Don't ever stop being amazed that Jesus died for you instead of you. Don't ever drift back to the world. It's like he just died only yesterday. Live that. And then Paul goes into chapter 2 and he starts describing his ministry. He says, listen, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, announcing the mystery of God, preaching the cross. I preach Christ crucified. That's his message. I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. This is not to say Paul was a shoddy communicator. This is not to say he was haphazard. But he did not come trying to get people to think, oh, what a beautiful, brilliant preacher he is. Think about how we talk, even in the church, about preaching. 
or how we talk about worship leaders and, and vocals and all those kind of things. And Paul's like, no, no, I, I, didn't, I didn't want anybody. I didn't want anybody to hear me preach and walk out and say, man, Paul can bring it, baby. So he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's not to say he doesn't talk about other subjects. I mean, like I said, we're going to talk about some crazy stuff on down the road. We're going to talk about lawsuits. We're going to talk about marriage. We're going to talk about singleness. We're going to talk about spirit speaking in tongues. We're going to talk about a lot of crazy stuff. What he's saying is the cross affects everything. So if you, wanted, if you, went, to, you, know, if you went to counseling with Paul and you had a money problem, Paul's going to take you to the cross at some point. If you went to Paul and you had a marriage problem, Paul's going to show you how the cross solves or helps or aids your marriage problem. If you went to Paul and you're like, man, there's this believer, and, and I think i got to take him to court. Well, get there. Paul's going to go take you to the cross before he lets you take that believer to court. That's how pervasive and massive the cross is. Now, here's the challenge for us. We live in an age where everybody is into new stuff. New ideas, conspiracy theories, what's new, what's on the news, and we get all wrapped up in that. And it's almost like, man, if something is not new, then it's not as valuable. Then it's maybe old school, or maybe it's like antiquated and outdated and not practical. I mean, this is 2022. We got to guard against that, church. There's a lot of Christians. There are a lot of Christians that are what I call single-issue Christians. They are so fired up about their pet peeve, their pet project, and they may have a biblical case that their position is biblical. But let me say this. We never, ever, ever get past the cross. That is the old news. It is the best news. And for the Christian, it is the one truth we must hold with all costs. It is our life. It is, our, it is his love for us. It is the power of God in our lives. So we don't need a new truth. We must guard and cherish the one truth. I get into conversations, and, and I'm like, and I try to bring people back to the cross, and they want to talk about their conspiracy theory. They want to talk about what, you know, well, what's going on in our country? I'm like, look, I, I love America. I put my hand in the air and said, I'll die for America. But we got to have the cross or we got nothing. Nothing. There was a time I got a handwritten letter every week that I did not say something about abortion. Like pages. I am against abortion. But we got to preach Christ crucified. That's our one truth that affects all other truths. And then Paul comes and he says this. He goes, I came to you in weakness and fear and trembling. He knew how insufficient he was to be the messenger of God. And he says, so my preaching and my speech were not with persuasive words of wisdom. And, and in Corinth, man, being able to talk, be a smooth talker, being able to give a great speech, that was like, you know, that was like, yeah, they put you on the cover of People magazine for that. You know, you'd make the cover of Sports Illustrated or something. That's what they value. 
Paul's like, I'm not coming like that. I'm just coming with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith is not based on human wisdom but on God's power. Paul would, never, Paul would be very concerned if whenever we described our salvation, we said something to this effect. Man, that sermon that that guy gave, it was so good. Because he would be like, did you trust in the sermon or did you trust in the Savior? Were you, were you more impressed with the preacher or with that naked man hanging on that bloody tree outside of Jerusalem? So faith, Paul would say, faith, which is direction setting, it's where we put our trust, that's wrongly placed, could actually be non-saving faith or superficial. Notice what he says. Look what he said. So that your faith may not be based on human wisdom, because that doesn't lead to the cross, but on God's power, which is the cross. Which is the cross. That's where it happens. So the power of the cross is this. Or success or the good life is we're come to the cross. We agree with its foolishness and that it's the way of life wisdom. That's our conviction, that I live by the cross. I never leave the cross. I don't graduate from the cross. And we act the miracle that we're called by God. That's humble confidence, humble courage. We're acting the miracle. We never graduate from the cross. I used to think this passage, when it talked about, when it talks about the demonstration of the Spirit's power, I used to think that meant there had to be some kind of, you know, ooey-gooey, roller coaster ride feeling in your stomach. I used to think maybe that means, you know, people get, quote, filled with the Holy Spirit and do whatever the Holy Spirit leads them to do, some kind of sign, some kind of miraculous thing, some kind of powerful thing. Paul, but then I read it, and I just came to this realization when I was preparing this message for y'all. That Paul's already said the Jews demand a sign, so, so it can't mean sign. It's the conviction. The God-called conviction that comes and comes alive in our hearts that says, you know what, I am at the cross and I see, I don't see the cross anymore as foolishness. I see it as wisdom and love. I see it as identity. I see it as eternity altering. And that takes po that's power being birthed in us because everything changes in that moment. It gives us this humility, but yet this confidence that we know that we know that we know that we're gods and we never want to leave. It's like that, you know, it's like Luther said. It's like Luther said, right? It's like Christ just died for me only yesterday. We were talking about a couple weeks ago the Holy Spirit. And I was like, uh, <clears throat> I know we're all in different locations, but I was like right here, and I'm pointing to where I was. I was like right here, and I was praying, and I was like, God, what does that mean right now for me to be filled with the Holy Spirit? And it's like my mind went blank. And all, he, all I heard, all I sensed was the blood of Jesus. That's it. And so I've been sort of studying and praying and meditating on that. And for some reason, this old preacher that's been doing this for 20 years, the cross had become sort of like that 9-11 to me. Just kind of, just back, way back there. God's bringing me back to the cross. Do you feel as if Christ died only yesterday? For some of you, today is the day you realize he died for you. And it's not foolish, it's power and wisdom.
Would you say yes to his calling of you and call back to him right now, believing in him for your faith, for your life, for your future, for your identity? For, for others of you, I'm praying right now as I'm speaking to you, there's a revival in your heart at that bloodied Jewish carpenter hanging on that tree, that you see that for what it is. And you feel that Jesus died for you just yesterday. And it awakens your passion and your affection. And it brings personal revival to your heart. Christ crucified. The power of God. The wisdom of God. We pray. God, thank you for turning the world upside down. I pray you turn our world upside down right now. So we see the cross for what it is, wisdom and power from you. So we might feel Jesus as if you did just die yesterday because we don't ever want to leave the cross where your love has been proven, where our victory has been assured, where Satan has been defeated, where eternal addresses are changed where we are adopted, where we are ransomed, where we are liberated, and where we stand as more than conquerors, where we stand as sons and daughters. Holy Spirit, you're one of your great works is to bring the reality and the message of the cross to bear on the human mind and the human soul and the human consciousness. And I pray, God, you would find people right now emptied of themselves, so, Holy Spirit, you may do your work in us, on us, and through us so that we are at the cross right now in surrender, in awe, in holy admiration, in love with you, King Jesus. And it is in your name that we pray. Amen.